Amen. Once upon a time, a farmer was out in his fields when he noticed a strange cloud formation overhead. There in the sky, he could make out the letters P and C. He knew the Lord was speaking to him. He concluded, God must want me to preach Christ. Wow, P and C. Well, the farmer sold his farm. He enrolled in Bible college, obtained his education, got his credentials, accepted a position in a local church, and preached his very first sermon. But the fellow was awful. I mean, boring with a capital B. His sermon stunk. Obviously, he was a terrible teacher. Well, one of the church members, familiar with his call to the ministry, approached him after the sermon and asked, Pastor, when you saw that PC in the clouds, are you sure the Lord wasn't telling you to plant corn? <laughs> hey, without a doubt, here's the most common question a pastor gets asked. How do I determine God's will for my life? It's a question that baffles many Christians, but it really shouldn't. For finding God's will for your life is really not that perplexing once you've taken certain steps and gotten your life in the proper position. This morning, we're going to learn how to walk in the will of God. In these first eight verses here in Romans chapter 12, Paul lists for us six simple steps to walk in God's will. If you're taking notes this morning, and you should be, jot down these six points. Step one, present your body. Step two, renew your mind. Step three, humble your heart. Step four, exercise your faith. Step five, find your place. And then finally, use your gift. Present your body, renew your mind, humble your heart, exercise your faith, find your place, use your gift, and your life will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's step one for you. Read again verse one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The first step for any believer to live his or her life in the will of God is to present your body to God. Have you done this? Have you given God your bod? The Old Testament sacrifice was a butchered carcass. But God no longer likes his sacrifices well done. Today he orders them rare. He wants them alive and still kicking and mooing on the plate. God is now into living sacrifices. You remember Abraham's son Isaac was a living sacrifice. He willingly offered his body to God and was literally bound to the altar. This meant that Isaac had no plans of his own. There was nothing he had to do, no place he had to go, no one he had to see. Isaac made himself available for whatever the father had in mind. And this is what the Lord wants from us. Reminds me of the little boy sitting at the end of the row in the church one Sunday. The offering plate was being passed. He took it. He set it down beside the aisle. And then he got out of his row and he stood in the offering plate. 
Well, the usher asked him, said, son, what are you doing? He replied, well, we learned this morning in Sunday school that you're supposed to give yourself to God. How right he was. Years ago, the city of Portland sponsored a handball championship. Surprisingly, it was won by a man 39 years old. In order to prevail, the man had to defeat challengers half his age and in much better condition. In addition, this fellow was a military veteran who had lost his arm in combat. When asked how he overcame such enormous obstacles to win the event, this is what he said. Decisions. Handball is a game of decisions. With each play, you have to decide if you're going to use your right hand or your left hand. For me, that decision's already been made. I can focus my concentration elsewhere. And when we give ourselves to God totally and completely, we too are no longer torn in two directions. It takes a lot of effort and concentration to straddle a fence. It's once you decide who you intend to please, then you can channel all your energy toward walking in God's will. This is why the first step to living our lives in God's will is to present our bodies. Well, the second step in living to living in God's will is in verse 2. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I like how the Phillips translation renders verse 2. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Hey, resist the pressure to conform, to be like everyone else, to just go with the flow, to just join the pack. The second step to walking in the will of God is to renew your mind. Learn to see from God's viewpoint. You know, we usually think of peer pressure as an adolescent problem, but many adults are tempted as well. I heard of a retail store in Utah that bought several used cars and parked them out in the lot in front of their shop. It created the impression that their store was the place to be. Business increased immediately. I hope you don't fall for that kind of trick. A Christian doesn't just do what everyone else is doing. We want to please God, not just go with the flow. Remember, toilet paper goes with the flow, not Christians. Hey, if you're going to walk in God's will, you've got to learn to swim against the current. Faithfulness goes upstream, not downstream. Rather than blend in, a Christian needs to stand out. We need to think God's thoughts. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. God wants to create in us new attitudes and new perspectives. He wants us to be spiritually motivated, internally motivated people. He hopes to renew our minds. I'm sure you've heard it said, a Christian is either a thermometer or a thermostat. You know, some people are thermometers. They're always conforming to room temperature. They want to be cool or gravitate toward what's hot. Whereas other people are thermostats. They don't register the prevailing temperature. They set it. Make it your goal to change your world, not be changed by it. You be the trendsetter. Don't conform, rather be transformed. We find God's will when we renew our minds. 
Third, to walk in God's will (coughs) requires that we humble our hearts. Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. You know, when God begins to work in our lives, our tendency is to let it go to our heads. We get proud. We assume the credit. We forget the scoreboard of our life always reads, me zero, God everything. Don't think too highly of yourself. In high school, I played basketball, and I thought I was pretty good. I guess you could say I was a legend in my own mind. One night, I was particularly proud of the fact that I was in the starting lineup, and so I ran off the floor. I walked over to the bench to pull off my warm-ups. Well, it wasn't until my warm-up pants were about halfway down that I realized that I had put my warm-up pants on without putting on my gym shorts first. I was so embarrassed. I got heckled by the guys behind me all night long. I scored two points that game. I was so rattled, I couldn't even grab a, I couldn't even tie my shoes. Oh boy, God has a way of releasing some air out of an inflated head, trust me. Well, here Paul tells us that we should see ourselves soberly. The Greek word means to be in one's right mind. It was actually a legal term used in a last will and testament. It validated a person's sanity. To think soberly is to think objectively and rationally and honestly. It's to have a sane and an objective estimation of yourself. Yes, we should never be proud, but neither should we be self-deprecating or self-abasing. If you have a talent, if you do a job well, there's nothing wrong with you acknowledging your skill, just as long as you keep it all in perspective. One night after dinner, Teddy Roosevelt and an overnight guest, they walked out onto the White House lawn to discuss some vital matters of national security. Well, after a long discussion, President Roosevelt, he peered up into the heavens and he pointed to a patch of faint light right next to the constellation of Pegasus. He said to his friend, that's the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as the Milky Way. It's one of 100 million galaxies and it consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own. Then he turned back toward the White House and he said, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Hey, compare yourself to me, and you'll loom large in your own eyes. But think soberly. Stack yourself up against the God who hung the heavens and who holds them in the palm of his hand, and your stature will shrink. Don't worry. God is fine even when you go to bed. One step to walking in God's will is to humble our hearts. A fourth step is to exercise our faith. Paul says in verse 3, to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You see, one way to miss God's will is to be too big, to think too highly of yourself. But another way is to be too small, to think too lowly of yourself. Oh, who am I to serve the Lord? I can't possibly do anything for God. He would never want to use me. See, a false humility provides a convenient excuse. Sure, you're a nobody, but according to my Bible, God uses nobodies when we trust in Him. 
Yes, God never likes a head inflated with pride, but he does desire a heart inflated with faith. And to each of us has been given a measure of faith. Don't tell me you don't have faith. You demonstrate faith whenever you climb into your 1,200-pound suicide machine and speed 60 miles per hour down the freeway, trusting in only a half-inch sheet of metal to protect you from other motorists on the road. That's faith to get into one of those things. I'm just saying to each of us, God gives a measure of faith, and he guides those of us who use that faith. That's why we talk about Muscle Up Wednesday. We want to study God's Word. We want to build up our faith and then begin to exercise it. Horse racing enthusiasts will remember the famed thoroughbred and triple crown winner Secretariat. In the Kentucky Derby, a one-mile race, Secretariat had a faster time for each successive quarter mile he ran. The horse got stronger as the race progressed. And the same is true in the Christian life, for faith is like a muscle. Exercise it, and it grows. It strengthens. And the more faith you have, the more guidance God gives. Truck drivers know that it's awfully hard to steer an 18-wheeler while it's standing still. Yet get that big boy rolling, and you can steer it with your pinky finger. God guides us when we rise up and when we step out in faith. Hey, when we use our faith to apply what we know, then God reveals more. To walk in God's will, you need to exercise your faith. And then the fifth step in walking in the will of God is to find your place. Read verses 4 and 5 with me. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you're an adult of average weight, it's amazing what your body accomplishes every 24 hours. Imagine this. In 24 hours, your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels 12,000 miles. You take 23,040 breaths. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a quarter pounds of food. Some of us more, some of us less. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. You move 750 muscles. Your nails grow .000046 of an inch. Your hair grows .01714 of an inch, if it hasn't fallen out already. And you exercise 7 million brain cells. No wonder you feel tired at the end of a day. Your body is a miracle of precision engineering. It's made up of several trillion cells all functioning as one unit, a blend of unity and diversity and mutuality. And it's interesting that God chose to refer to his church as a body. We are many members, but we're one body. And we're called on to rub shoulders with each other and to work together. Every Christian has been called to lay aside their personal agendas and cooperate for the greater good. You should feel a part of something greater than yourselves and make a contribution. 
Hey, as much as you might cringe at the thought, you need me and I need you. Our spiritual health and effectiveness is dependent on our togetherness. Oh, my. Did you hear about the controversy that occurred at the Church of the Hand Tools? Did you hear about this? Some of the members started griping about Brother Hammer. He's too forceful. He's pounding home his points and nailing the rest of us. Well, Brother Hammer, he, he got upset. He pointed to Brother Screwdriver. Well, I'm no worse than him. He's always going around in circles, and Brother Punch has to help him get started. This angered Brother Screwdriver. What about Brother Plain? His work is all on the surface. There's no depth to that guy. Brother Plain, he shouted at Brother Tape Measure. You're so judgmental. You're always measuring people, sizing them up. You always think you're right. Finally, Brother Tape Measure, he turned and he pointed his finger at Brother Sandpaper. Don't look at me. He's the one that's rough and gritty. He's always rubbing people the wrong way. Why don't you all go back to the box? That's when the master carpenter arrived. Jesus, he put on his apron, and he went to work building a pulpit from which the word of God could be preached. He used the hammer and the screwdriver and the punch and the plane and the tape measure and the sandpaper, each in just the right way and at just the right time. Finally, it was Brother Saul who saw it. He rose up and he informed the others, brothers, we're all tools of equal importance in the hands of the Lord. And so are we. God guides us when we acknowledge our interdependence and commit ourselves to each other. Hey, fail to find your place in the body of Christ. Choose to go it alone. View yourself as the lone ranger for Christ. You, you don't have time for church. Distance yourself from the rest of the body and you'll hinder yourself from finding God's will. The fifth step toward finding the will of God is to find your place. Present your body, renew your mind, humble your heart, exercise your faith, find your place, and then sixth and the final step to walking in God's will is to use your gift. In verses 6 through 8, Paul lists several of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, having then gifts differing, According to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Our ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Did you know that God has given to each one of us certain spiritual gifts? To some of us, he's given more than one gift, but to each of us, he has given at least one gift. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6 tells us, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Some Bible teachers see here three categories of spiritual gifts. The first category Paul calls gifts or charismata. The second are ministries. And the third are activities. Or in the Greek, it's 
energio, or energies. Risking oversimplification, this points to three types of spiritual gifts. Motivations, ministries, and manifestations. The manifestations are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Tongues and miracles and gifts of faith and so forth. Gifts of healing. The ministries are found in Ephesians 4. Apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher. But the motivations are here in Romans chapter 12. Now this being true, the gifts listed in our text are basic motivations that the Holy Spirit places in our spirit at the time of our conversion. In doing so, God colors our perspective with a certain tint. The Spirit writes His will on our hearts by planting in us certain spiritual tendencies. Our motivational gift will determine how we approach and react to situations. Recognizing and utilizing our spiritual gift is crucial to our walking in God's will. Now realize a spiritual gift is not a natural talent. It's not a learned skill. It's a supernatural enabling that you would have never possessed had it not been given to you by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is charismata, which combines two words, charis or grace and mata or gift. Your motivational gift is a grace gift. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's prompted by God's grace. But it's crucial for you to know it and use your gift so that you can walk in God's will. And Paul lists for us seven possible motivational gifts. The first gift is prophecy. Sometimes we hear the word prophecy used as a synonym for prediction or premonition. We associate it with uh, foretelling the future. But its primary meaning is that of foretelling. It's been said a prophet was not known primarily for his hindsight or his foresight, but for his insight. With this gift, God stirs up a heart. He fills up a mind. He opens the mouth. And the prophet uses his faith to utter the specific message that God has given him. You could say that the prophet is God's bullhorn. He declares God's truth loud and clear. The person with this motivational gift is quick to take a stand. This is the person who insists on correction and righteousness. He or she sees issues in black and white. They refuse to compromise. The prophet rises up in faith and without fear of offending, boldly speaks the particular word that God has given them. The gift of prophecy is an important gift. The second motivational gift on the list is that of ministry. The root word is servant. We're all called to be servants, but the person with this gift goes above and beyond the call of duty. He depicts God's truth by living it out in service. The person with the gift of ministry has a supernatural knack for helping others in practical ways. He or she just loves serving the Lord in hands-on fashion. I'll never forget one Saturday I was at the church and I saw a brother busy doing a handful of odd jobs that really needed to be done. And I went over to tell him how much I appreciated what he was doing. His reply was classic. He said, don't mention it. That's what I'm here for. Well, hey, this is the person with the gift of ministry. The person with this gift seeks no recognition, seeks no payback. His reward is the fulfillment that comes 
from using his gift to the glory of God. He's at perfect peace because he knows what he's here for and he's busy doing it. Well, the third motivational gift is that of teaching, the gift of teaching. This is my gift. Nothing fires my engines more than studying God's word and then teaching God's truth to God's people. When that light comes on in your head, boy, that really excites me. William McGee once observed, teachers are divided into three classes. Those you can listen to, those you can't listen to, and those you can't help listening to. The latter person has the gift of teaching. Teaching defines God's truth. A person with the gift of teaching can take profound truths and make them simple, easy to understand. It was said of a good teacher, he put the cookies on the bottom shelf. I've heard it put, a teacher's task is to take a room full of live wires and see that they're properly grounded. Well, the fourth motivational gift is that of exhortation. Teaching instructs us what to do, whereas exhortation encourages us to do what we ought to do. It demands God's truth. The person with this gift challenges and motivates and incites others to action. He or she are the spiritual booster cables who jumpstart brothers and sisters with weak batteries. I never forget hearing of an ocean liner. It was in the midst of a storm when a woman fell overboard. The passengers were all clinging to the ship's rail watching what was going on when suddenly a man dove into the icy waters and he rescued this drowning girl. Well, everyone was surprised when the hero turned out to be an 80-year-old man. Later, the crew wanted to throw a party in his honor. The hero was called on to come up and make a speech. He stood and he said, I have just one thing to say. Who pushed me? (laughs) But at times, we need a little push to do what we know is right, don't we? We need a little nudge. And the person with the gift of exhortation knows how to apply a little gentle kick in the pants when we need it. Well, the fifth gift on Paul's list is giving, the gift of giving. Again, giving is a discipline that we all should develop, but the person with the gift of giving has a special knack for loosening up the purse strings to bless others and to further God's work. I've told you this many times, but I'll never forget the guy in the early days of Calvary Chapel. He had the gift of giving. God had really blessed his business, and he loved to just sort of give back to the Lord and to God's people. And he had an interesting method for distributing his gifts. He would give what I called $100 handshakes. He'd just come to church with a pocket full of $100 bills, and whenever he felt impressed by the Lord to do so, he'd take one out, and he'd fold it up into a little square, and he'd put it in the palm of his hand, and he'd walk up to you, and he'd give you a handshake and just leave that $100 bill in your hand. I never missed shaking that guy's hand when he was here on Sunday mornings. Never missed it, man. Hoping I'd get one of those $100 handshakes. Hey, Paul says that he who has this gift needs to exercise it with liberality. The words suggest that we give with no ulterior motives, with no strings attached. If you possess the gift of giving, give freely and give selflessly. Well, the sixth gift is the gift of leading, spiritual management, we could call it. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40 tells us, 
let all things be done decently and in order. You recall when Jesus fed the 5,000, he first organized the multitude into groups of 50. Throughout the Bible, we learn that God is always organized, and we should be too. It's been said, don't agonize, organize. That's why God has certain individuals within the body of Christ. He raises them up to help us organize and mobilize our efforts. Every year, the makers of duct tape, they give a $5,000 award for the most creative use for their product. Well, one year, the prize went to a man named Anthony Green, who was scheduled on a flight from Honduras to Guatemala. The pilot announced that there was a hole in the wing of the airplane and the flight would be delayed. Well, Green pulled out the duct tape that he always carried with him in his briefcase. With it, he patched the hole and the airplane made its destination on time. You know, some people in the church are that same way. They know how to patch things up and make things fly and we're thankful for them. God gives some members of the body the gift of leading to help us reach our God-appointed destination on time. Well, the seventh and final motivational gift is the gift of mercy. Mercy has been defined as your pain in my heart or as two hearts tugging at the same load. Again, we're all called to be merciful. But the believer with the gift of mercy has a special capacity to feel and identify and empathize with another person's suffering. And Paul tells those with the gift of mercy to exercise it with cheerfulness. See, because of their sensitivity and their sympathy for people, often the gift of mercy can draw a person into the depression of the person that they're trying to help. The two empathizers end up in a huge pity party. That's why when you exercise the gift of mercy, you should reach out with a merry heart. Stay upbeat. Do it with cheerfulness. It's the joy of the Lord that leads to our healing. Now, the question becomes, Sandy, if every believer has a spiritual gift, that means I have one. But how do I identify my gift? If I want to walk in the will of God, I need to know my gift. How do, I, how do I know my gift? And the answer to that question is surprisingly easy. Ask yourself one question. If I were made the pastor of Calvary Chapel for a day, what would I immediately want to do? What would be the first change I'd want to make around this place? Well, if you would say, well, we need to get more involved in social issues. We need to take a more public stand on, for godliness. Well, then probably your gift is the gift of prophecy. If you responded, no, we need to get involved helping each other. Let's reach out to the elderly. Let's have more activities for the kids. We need to spruce up the place around here, you know. Maybe you've got the gift of ministry. Or if you say, hey, we need classes that offer in-depth studies on the cults and history and apologetics. Man, we need a course on New Testament Greek. Well, then maybe your gift is the gift of teaching. If your response is, oh, we need more home fellowships, more small groups, opportunities to encourage and challenge each other, well, then maybe your gift is exhortation. 
Or you might say, hey, we need to put more stress on giving to missions, assisting the poor. Let's add to the benevolence fund. Well, there's the gift of giving. Or maybe your response is, well, I would really love to be the pastor around here because I'm so frustrated with the lack of organization around this place, and I I just think we need better communication. Well, then that's the gift of leading. Or you could say, well, let's start a prison ministry. Let's visit the shut-ins. Well, that's this beautiful gift of mercy. Just think, what if I were in charge? What would be your first inclination? And that's probably your motivational gift. If you need more help identifying your gift, here's another little exercise for us. Let's say my grandson, Grant, my four-year-old grandson. Let's say Grant makes a little potted plant for his mother this morning in Sunday school. Yet after church, he decides he wants to see G-Daddy, get a big hug, and maybe some candy out of his pocket. And so he comes running down the aisle with that little potted plant. But all of a sudden, he trips on David's big foot right there and throws it straight up into the air, and it cracks on the concrete, and dirt and pottery go everywhere. Oh, my. How would you react if you saw all that happen? How would you react? Well, if your first move is to jump up and start looking for a broom and a dustpan, I need to clean this up. Well, then chances are you've got the gift of ministry. If your first reaction is to pull out your wallet, oh, let me pay for that little broken pot and that plant, you know. Well, then maybe you've got the gift of giving. If you would say to my grandson, young man, let this be a warning to you. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord, there'll be many opportunities to stumble in life, and you need to watcheth your steppeth, well, then you've got the gift of prophecy. Or maybe your first reaction would be to show Grant a clever little foot maneuver he could use to kind of right himself the next time he started to stumble. Well, then yours is the gift of teaching. Or if your first thought is, man, how can we rearrange the chairs in here so that that never happens again? That's leading or organization. Or maybe you'd put your arm around little Grant and you'd try to encourage him with a pep talk. That's okay, buddy. Keep trying. Next time you'll do better. Man, you got the gift of exhortation. Or maybe you would rush down and pick him up and cuddle him and kiss his itty-bitty boo-boos. You got the gift of mercy. But realize, if Grant fell in the aisle this morning and broke his potted plant, there would be seven diverse reactions among the people in this room today, all of which would be valid, God-ordained reactions. See, if we realize this, we can avoid a lot of conflict. Say you've got the gift of mercy, and you, you see some guy coming over with the gift of prophecy, standing over Grant, you know, sort of rebuking him and trying to buck him up. Well, you might assume that the guy's insensitive, that he's calloused. Who does he think he is? No, he's just got a different gift than you do. He has a gift of prophecy. You have the gift of mercy. Or what if you have the gift of ministry and you're looking for the broom and the dustpan, but you see some fellow over here trying to teach Grant some little clever foot maneuver and all. You think, man, look at that lazy jerk. He just doesn't want to help clean up. 
It's everybody's tendency to judge other people in the body on the basis of their own particular giftedness. And yet in doing so, we can destroy harmony and unity. Hey, don't forget, we all have different gifts that cause us to react to situations differently. Be glad everybody is not like you. That other points of view exist in the body. A healthy church appreciates its diversity. Well, how do you discover and walk in God's will? It's not as hard as you think. There are just six steps. Present your body. Have you done that? Have you dedicated your body to God? Renew your mind. Are you in the process? Humble your heart. Exercise your faith. You've got faith. Now you need to exercise it. Find your place. Don't tell me you're a lone ranger for Christ. You don't have time for church. You do that and you won't walk in God's will. You've got to find your place. And then you need to use your gift. Follow those six steps and your life will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Walking in the will of God is not as complicated as we make it. We just need to get up and get moving. I hope you'll begin that process today.